Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name is Josh Miles. I'm a designer, principal, and brand strategist at Miles Herndon. Check us out online. It's milesherndon.com. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with the one and only Brian Collins for a round two conversation. If you missed our first interview, it's short and sweet and it's up on iTunes. And among other things, you've got to tune in just for the pirate story. So without further ado, please enjoy part two of my conversation with Brian Collins. All right, guys, I'm very excited to have our returning guest, Chief Creative Officer and co-founder of Collins, Mr. Brian College. Collins, all the way from Greenwich Village again. I don't know why I have such a hard time saying Greenwich Village. Brian, thank you, and welcome back to Obsessed with Design. You're welcome. I like Brian College. <laughs> There's something you know, something implied there. Well, that was really funny. Like Sometimes, like the beginning of my career, I'd say, hi, I'm Brian Collins. I'm calling to speak to Jim. Is it Bryant College? I'm like, no, 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 Brian Collins is. So anyway, maybe one day you and I will start a college. <laughs> I like it. I was actually talking to some students uh, back at Purdue University, which is my alma mater last week. And I told them my tip for getting past the gatekeeper when you're trying to set up an interview, as, you, as I would always say, yeah, this is Josh Miles. And then the receptionist would say, I'm sorry, who are you with? And I would say, Purdue University. And they would say, one moment, please. <laughs> it always worked. It always worked. So now, now everybody knows my trick. Now they just say, I'm just Josh Miles and they, and they, they come to the phone. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's nice to see, it's nice to see you again. Yeah. Good to see you. Hey, so let's, uh, let's just jump in here. I appreciate you were, um, quick to get us rescheduled for part two, since we had kind of a quick conversation the first time around, but First time around, it was like it was the end of the summer, and now I've like now I have my now I have my New York you know winter blacks on, so I'm you know, <laughs> ready to go, ready to go for ready ready to go for the fall, New York, and bring on the winter. That's how we know you are both a New Yorker and in the creative industry as the the black garb. Well, we are priests, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about maybe what. A, a typical or a common day looks like for you, which maybe there is no such thing, but kind of what's your, what's your daily role look like and what's kind of day-to-day uh, duties for you? Well, well, I'm here in New York. Well, there, there, there are two common days. One, I'm not anywhere in New York. Um, I, I'm uh, traveling or I've, I've been lucky enough to, invite it to speak somewhere or I'm working with a client. But in New York, it's probably a typical day uh, today we started at eight thirty with our uh, with our team meeting. I meet with my uh, managing director, my director of operations, and uh, uh, our executive creative director. And we sort of take a look at the work that's unfolding. A client has made a huge request of us um, to uh, to uh, embed some of our uh, creative people uh, for a few weeks um, within the company culture itself in order to, uh, in order to get some, some work done, which we've done. We've done that with some of our clients, including Facebook. And so we have to figure out how to do that so we can get work done. Um, it's, it turns out to be a very flexible way of working. We're doing it more and more. People are, are well-trained here. And after they've been here for a couple of years, uh, they can go on site to kind of, uh, to work through things very quickly. So they're going to spend a couple of days there and uh, a few days here. Um, we're going to work that out. Um, and then we figured out other sort of 
things request for business, the kind of things we want to take on, the kinds of stuff that we don't want to do, the kind of stuff that moves us into the future versus the kind of stuff that we, we've done we've done a lot of. So our, our um, so that's how we sort of start and we plan the the uh, that's how we do the morning, um, and then we get into the work. And uh, today we had three client meetings. Um, here at the office we had three client presentations going on at the same time. This filled all our conference rooms, and so there's a I like it when it gets like that because there's like a hub of a buzz of activity. So, uh, that's great. And uh, nice lunch. Um, we do a final review of some of our strategy work for a presentation we're doing with a fantastic food client um, tomorrow morning. So I just reviewed the final strategy. We're making final edits to the work and some, some copy and some strategy changes and some recommendations around technology. Um, it's now almost 7 o'clock here. We just finished that up. The team will make those. T- they're finishing up a few tweaks before they go home at 7.30. And then we'll get here tomorrow morning at 8.30, review that, and we'll go into our client meeting with final tweaks at 10 o'clock. So that's sort of a, uh, a, a typical day. Usually what I do to sort of break up my day, I'll run out. I'm in Greenwich Village. And so there's coffee shops and restaurants and cafes and delis and incredible ice cream stores. And we're just filled with lots of places to eat. So we can quickly run out kind of take a break during the day and then um, they come back. Being in Greenwich Village is uh, an incredible blessing. And we're two blocks south of Union Square, so we, can, we go to the farmer's market. You can get fresh rhubarb pie, <laughs> a fresh strawberry rhubarb pie, which is dangerously good, um, or fresh vegetables and cheeses and breads, which you usually pick up and bring back to, to the office in the afternoon. So it's a great neighborhood. It's the reason we're in New York. I was just telling somebody the other day um, that the first couple of years that I worked for an agency, I brought a sack lunch every day and I ate kind of the same thing almost every day. And I drove myself absolutely crazy because I was literally at my desk almost the whole day. And uh, I finally got to the point of, yeah, I know I could I know I could save a few bucks if I just didn't eat out at lunch every day. But that's like my one time to reset my mind and kind of get a fresh perspective during the day. And it sounds like you guys kind of follow a similar routine. Well, it's, it's, you know, we have these intense meetings sometimes. I need two or three breaks during my day, whether it's a, to get a cup of coffee, even though we have an incredible coffee machine here. I just like walking down. There's a really, uh, there's, there's a gray dog restaurant right downstairs. Um, it's incredible that a lot of celebrities live around here. So Alec Baldwin lives across the street. So we see Alec Baldwin <laughs> every and his wife and his kid. Um, it's insane. So it's very strange to see Alec Baldwin on Saturday night. Uh, live doing Trump and then seeing him having breakfast at Pan Quotidian, like around the corner or, or at uh, Grey Dog. But he's here all the time. He's, 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 off, he's, he's almost right across the street. And then it's a place for celebrities. You know, um, Elijah Wood, uh, we bump into um, a lot. Jessica Lang, we see all the time. So, and because you, you, you're New Yorkers, you just sort of, you don't talk, you don't mention anything. <laughs> but that's kind of, you know, for, for people who come and visit us, they go, that's Alec Baldwin. Yeah, well, well yeah, don't bother him because he's he lives here. So people <laughs> in the Yorkers are cool. Like you don't you don't don't ask him for his autograph. But um, that's kind of cool. Um, but it, it gives us a break during the day, and um, it's just easy to, to you know. Grand Village is designed to walk around, so it's good. If we want a real break, we can walk down to Washington Square Park. So I have to have a difficult conversation with either an employee or a client. I'll go, hey, let's walk down to Washington Square Park. And it's beautiful. <laughs> so you got to give tough news in a beautiful setting. And it goes down a little softer. So Washington Square Park is code for if we're going to have a tough conversation. Washington Square Park is like, <laughs> oh, you know, Washington Square Park. We're going to have a difficult, we're going to have a, I don't think it's got a, but 
just been my strategy. No one's figured that out yet because <laughs> okay. no one knows. Like, where'd he go? It's in Square Park. Oh, shit. <laughs> we won't tell. We won't tell. So something you alluded to was uh, kind of figuring out which uh, which clients are a good fit, which ones might not be. You know, you've worked with some amazing clients between Spotify and Facebook and Target and Levi's, Coca-Cola. How do you yeah. how do you spot a great client? Like what makes a good one for you? Trust. Trust. Um, at the end of the day, that's all, all, all of us do. It's what you do. It's what we do. Is uh, We do three things at Collins. One, we listen really, really hard, which involves empathy and the desire to find patterns. We create work building on those patterns that, that we see um, and kind of design experiences using technology, using design in order to do that um, and in order to gauge people and somehow make their lives better through what we do. Um, and thinking about how we can make their lives better uh, through design. Um, and the third thing we do is sell. Because if you have great ideas, if you listened hard and listened well, found patterns that are important, that you can build on, the great creative work. But if you can't help a client make a leap to do something, then you fail. So we listen, we create, and uh, we sell. And that's it. In design, that's like a terrible word. Like, how do you sell? Well, <laughs> clients need to know that you're brave for them. Um, and that's where you build trust. And if they trust you, they'll follow you. Um, and we've got, we've been really lucky in the last four years is that almost all of our growth um, has come from existing clients. And that's the way in my mind that I want to build a business, which means that you do another project and they give you a larger project, you give a larger project and you can build great relationships that way. And that's about, that's about trust. So if it's a client that we can build a long-term relationship with and we can build trust for each other, they know that we have their best interests at heart and they know that they're interested in doing extraordinary work that can change the game for them, then, then we'll do it in a heart. We'll work with them in a heartbeat. Are there any um, red flags that stick out that you, you know, you said something about pattern recognition. So you've seen patterns of like which clients aren't going to trust you and what stands out as a no-no. Yeah. Um, stands out as a no, no, we don't pitch. Hmm. We don't, it's, it's incredible to me that people pitch. If clients come to see us and they've spoken to us for about a half, like they're in a conversation and we're, they said, we'd like to come by and spend time with you. Or they said, could you please come out and meet with us and I guess. And if the, the senior people start opening up their phones or opening up their laptops and they start not paying attention to the conversation that brought us in and they're on their phones and their stuff. I'll stop the meeting. I'll go, wait, 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 what's going on here? You invited us to talk. Are we not interesting you? Do you think what we're saying is bullshit? Um, are, are, is this not sincere for you? Are you not, are you not entertained? Um, <laughs> do you know what we're talking about, then we can change the conversation or we, we can leave because it sounds like you've got other stuff you're going to do. Now I, I don't do it in an arrogant way, but it's like, Yes. The kind of clients who pull out their cell phones and try to do other work while you're trying to do the thing that they ask you to do is a really good indication that they're probably not the kind of client that you, you, you want to work with. Hmm. I understand that there are emergencies and, and, and stuff like that, but, but generally most of the clients who we've met with um, want to engage in a dialogue with you. And so when they start pulling out the phones in the middle of the meeting, I, I will say that's my, my, and their response to my request to, to be, remain engaged with us is a good indication to whether they have a sense of humor or they don't. Now, my experience has been on the West Coast. Um, they tend to be more younger, uh, the more young, the more 
entrepreneurial. They move more quickly. They make decisions. The layers of the organization are flat. So we have incredible success working with a lot of the um, remarkable firms around the West Coast, Airbnb, Everlane, uh, Instagram, Facebook. Um, incredible clients that move fast, give us great opportunity to do amazing work. Um, and I've been incredibly, they've been remarkable clients to work with. We have incredible clients um, here uh, in, in our New York office, which is Spotify, Target, um, Coca-Cola, EOS, um, um, Calaris, uh, Sam Edelman. Um, some of the most, um, and, a, and a lot of work, as I said, we, that we do with um, Target. Those clients um, move really fast well as well. What we sometimes get is we get calls from like old school media brands, um, and we get a phone call from a junior marketing person or a second junior marketing person. And I say, well, when can we speak to the CMO? Oh, you won't be meeting with the CMO. You'll be meeting with this person and then they'll be meeting to put, like, it, and, and then the layers in a lot of these old entrenched legacy organizations in New York. Mm-hmm. I just have the time for it. Um, the, between the first presentation where Facebook came in to ask us to talk about our work to our first meeting with Mark Zuckerberg was in three meetings. And we got to present some of um, our thinking to him. That was three meetings. You know, you know, we had six setup calls with these people, a very famous old school media company. And on three of them, the CMO said she was going to show up and she didn't show up. So that, so I, I now know why those companies are in trouble. They can't get out of their own way. And I know why <laughs> companies on the West Coast are eating their breakfast, their lunch and their dinner. They move fast. They don't worry about status. They worry about ideas. And um, they like to make stuff and move. Still on the West Coast, you get these these really funny, they're incredibly dusty companies, and they say they want to move fast. They don't. They have no idea how to, and they're practically arthritic. So we work with companies that only want to move faster. We only work with companies that want to move faster than the culture itself. There are a lot of companies that say they do, but they don't. We can sniff them out pretty quickly, and we tend to um, uh, decline the opportunity to work with them. But um, we've been really lucky with the companies that we've we've been working with. Most recently, you know, a, a company uh, that's been around for years has been Estee Lauder. They've been one of the best clients we've ever worked with, and they want to move fast. So you can have been around for a long time, like Coca Cola, and Coca Cola moves fast. Target moves fast. There are a lot of them who just don't know how to move as fast as the culture dictates. That was just a I just blabbed for like twenty minutes. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. Tell me a little bit about how the team at Collins is structured. I operate as the chief creative officer, but I put uh, I push out a lot of responsibility to um, my partners and my crew. Um, I believe in pushing out what would be called distributed leadership, uh, sort of a fancy name for that, which is I push as much responsibility out to the peripheries of, of our business. Uh, and uh, Matt Luckers, who runs our office in San Francisco, does the same thing. Um, we move fast. Um, we move really fast. Um, and we like to produce, in our very first phases of work, we produce a quantity. It's more important for me at first than quality. We try to explore as many possible directions of our project across communications, technology, environments, products, um, environments. Um, to make sure that we're exploring as much as we possibly can. Um, that means sometimes we run hot and fast here. And because of our hiring policy, um, we tend to attract people who are diverse in their skills and diverse in their interests and certainly diverse in their backgrounds. One of the poisons of the HR world um, that they've sort of, I think, clogged and 
killed a number of good creative cultures is this, this idea of cultural fit. Like she's not a good fit. They're not a good fit. That's the, that'll destroy creative culture sooner than anything. We do not hire for cultural fit. Uh, what we are looking for are people who are misfits, people who bring something to our equation that we don't have, people who are different, who think about technology in a different way, who think about digital in a different way, who think about design or environments or interaction design differently than we do, um, who different come from a different background or bring a different set of experiences. Um, so we're looking for cultural contribution more than we are cultural fit. Cultural fit means, oh, I don't get along with them. And I don't, I'm not quite sure they're the right kind of person for us. Well, let's stupid because they could be brilliant at doing something. And so what if they're not a good cultural fit? They might bring something you've never seen before. So um, I hate, I think cultural fit is poison. I think it's uh, an excuse for not trying to get along with people who are different than you are. Um, as a result of that, though, we have people who are very different in terms of their energy and their character. We have people who work in coding um, and people who work uh, in UX um, that are very sort of intense and they can come in and they'll work very quietly, get under headsets and be very focused on, on, on a task at hand. And I might only just say hello to them or, or grab a cup of coffee. They won't be deeply engaged in conversation. And yet there are other members of our team who are very fluent um, in brand strategy and they're very vocal. There are other members of our team who just like to create or paint or do something that's very different from what everybody else is doing. So we've designed the company to be, um, uh, to allow for really incredibly broad range of people. Um, and so, um, it's, it's a, it's a, maybe a weird structure, but it allows us incredible diversity. Um, and also allows us to kind of staff our projects with a kind of difference, um, that, 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 uh, we've tried to nurture here. So as a, um, student of not only, uh, misfit culture and, and, uh, design, but also of, uh, branding. We, you know, we've talked a little bit in the last episode about your work for, for Spotify and your, how you landed the Jim Henson project. And I'm curious if there are any brands out there that you really admire that you guys didn't work on. Like what's some of your favorite stuff that's out there in the market today? Well, the, the brand that I hold in extraordinarily high esteem is, um, I think the Walt Disney company, what they're doing, uh, how they've aggregated the most important stories the world um, that we all pay attention to and what they're doing with them is extraordinary whether it's the, the the reboot of star wars whether you like it or not um it's been re-energized um even though i saw that movie the first time i saw that movie was 1977 um they did it again but it was but it was i didn't mind watching it again it's like a, um i think they're gonna if they're not careful to turn it into a james Bond franchise where there's always the chase scene, there's always the attack on the Death Star or something like a Death Star. But for the most part, that brand's been brought back to life um, in ways it had never been before. Marvel, um, as well as all the incredible, the revitalization of their animation uh, discipline, the animation studio is and, and Pixar. I mean, I, they are on fire. Um, and the, the revitalization and the growth of their parks uh, in Asia, uh, the most recent one in Shanghai, as well as the, the ongoing development of their park in Florida and in California, um, as well as in Europe. It's, they're a remarkable company. And they've become a cross-generational uh, cross, uh, brand that's now mythic. You, you, your great-grandmother, your grandmother, your mom, you, and your children 
can all go to a Disney park and have a practically mythic experience uh, from between the music, uh, the stories, and and uh, and the and all the different experiences you might have had across any of those brands. So I think they are they become the world storyteller, um, and their stories are remarkable. And they're always stories somehow about resilience and creativity. And so I, I think um, that that's a brand I really admire. I think they really really admire them. And I and the people who I've met from that company um, are almost consistently great uh, people. Um, so that's, that's, that's just one brand. I, I've been lucky. I mean, most of the brands I've grown up with that I've always wanted to work with, I, I have. Whether it's the first car I drew, drove, uh, my, my dad's XKE. Um, I worked with Jaguar for four years. Or, um, you know, my favorite brand that my grandfather would buy me before I went to the beach on Cape Cod. He'd buy me a nice cold Coca-Cola. So um, those are great brands to work with. Are there any brands that you're just dying to be a part of or any types of projects that you haven't done yet that you're looking forward to doing? You know, I, I wish I could give you a really, we're always looking for a project that pushes us, that takes what we know and pushes it us into the next step. So we're, we're looking for experiences that uh, can amplify our experience in uh, creating responsive environments, creating um, responsive technologies, uh, sort of the intersection of environment, mobile, uh, digital um, that are really immersive environments. We wanted, we're doing more of that. We're doing that with the Henson um, exhibition at the Museum of Moving Image with pretty intense uh, responsive environments um, where you actually will change the environment uh, that, that you're in. Um, so we're looking to do more of that kind of work, uh, more, of the, more of the work where it's immersive uh, technology and storytelling, um, virtual reality, stuff where technology kind of makes bounds that you go like, well, how do, how do they do that? Um, and so I'm, I'm eager to find things that leave, that'll stretch us into new areas that, 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 where, where we've been. We seem to be invited, we're being invited to do more exhibition design. Um, and uh, I, I like to create a space where people learn um, that stuff they've never learned before. So that's interesting to us. And we're getting more and more involved in retail design and development. And so we're taking uh, some of the experiences that we're doing in immersive environments for ex exhibition design, and putting that into retail and some of the principles we're learning about retail. How do you make a magnetic experience to get somebody, you know, off the street into your store? We're, we're taking that, we're putting that into, um, into exhibition design. So, um, I think you caught me to bed. I don't know if I'm answering this appropriately, but, but I'm, I'm always looking for something we haven't done. Yeah. I think that's a great example. Great answer. Brian, who are some of your design heroes? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, there's graphic design heroes, and probably one of my biggest one is Karita Kent, um, the former Catholic nun who decided to become like the best graphic designer ever. And I was lucky. I grew up in Boston, so I saw her work all over the Boston gas. There's a giant uh, gas reserve tank right on the runway to, uh, to Logan. And when you would drive into Boston, it's massive. Uh, she did this giant graphic with yellows and greens and purples and blues. She did it in the early seventies, maybe late sixties. Um, and it's still there and it became a, a, a marker and it looks like someone just poured massive amounts of paint, just dropped it um, on top of this, uh, this giant gas tank. And now when, you know, when you're 11 and you see stuff like that and someone says, well, graphic designer did that. That's like, when you're a kid, like, that's cool. So Akrita Kent is a huge influence. Um, I was lucky enough to have both George Nelson and Ray Eames as master classes um, 
as master instructors where I, where I went to school at uh, the Massachusetts College of War. Uh, so I met and had a master class with George Nelson as well as with Ray Eames. That's amazing. That'll open up your when you're 20 years old. Um, I got to work with Paul Rand for uh, almost six months on a project that I invited him to do with me that we did with the AIGA. That was amazing. Earlier in my life, I got to work with a really well-known fashion illustrator named Antonio Lopez. Any of you who are out there might be listening, just Google his name, um, Antonio Lopez Illustrator, and it'll blow your mind. I mean, Antonio's work was was incredible. So I, I guess the people who inspired me, with the exception of Creed Kent, who I never met, um, are people who have, who have gotten um, uh, to work with. On the flip side, uh, the people who inspired me are people who I've hired or and, and people who, who I've worked with. So Joe Duffy was an inspiration uh, for me when I went to go work for Joe. Um, when I was 29, that, that opened up the top of my head. Um, I met Michael Vanderbilt when I was 23 years old and I spent a day with Michael. Um, and that, that was formative for me. Uh, so those are people who, who, who I met and Joe, I worked for, and then people I've hired included people like, uh, Michael Kay, who now is a partner at mother, um, Alan Dye, who's now um, at Apple, uh, Rebecca Mendez, uh, she won the Cooper Hewitt national design um, award a couple of years ago. Um, Rick Boyko, the chief creative officer at Ogilvy, who hired me, had said that the people who I've hired have had better careers than I have. <laughs> so um, I'll, um, I'll take that as a compliment, but I, I, I've learned an extraordinary amount um, from them. Uh, Matt Luckhurst, who is my partner out in San Francisco, was my graduate student. Um, he now is my partner and runs our office in San Francisco. Deborah Adler was my student, my first student at the, the SVA program, and she went and redesigned Target's medicine bottle in, in, in my thesis class with her. That was an inspiration to see. And you know, one of the best things was, was inviting my partner, Lee Mashmeyer, to open up uh, Collins with me almost 10 years ago now. And uh, Lee was inspiring to me every day that we worked um, uh, together. And we still do, we still do a little bit um, um, now. Uh, he's now Chief Creative Officer for Chibani. But working with Lee for almost a decade was incredible, you know, and Lee is 20 years my, my junior. I hired him when uh, Lee was 26 and um, he became my partner. But, you know, you can get as much if you're, if you're open. Um, I get as much, but I need even more inspiration for the people who I work with now than any of the heroes that I've idolized. That's awesome. I think the moral of the story is if you want to be an amazing designer, you just intersect paths with Brian Collins. Well, <laughs> so there, there, I've, I've been lucky with the people who um, we've we've hired. Um, they've gone on to do good things. Like Tim Goodman works with me for three years. Tim was great. Um, Tim now works in our studio here um, independently. But uh, when he was looking for office, I'm like, we've tons of we've ten thousand square feet. Tim, come on in. So he's basically. <laughs> but Tim, you know, Tim's career has exploded um, as well. Now he's what I love it. Tim is giving a keynote speech. At the Howe Conference, I'm giving a keynote speech at the Howe Conference. So it's, you know, I hired Tim when he was 27 or 28. And it was one of his first jobs out of, out of school. Two years before that, Tim was a house painter. So now Tim flies around the world doing his work um, and is giving a keynote at the Howe Conference and uh, is sort of a celebrated designer and sold his first movie script to Hollywood uh, around, his, around his design project. So the, Tim's accelerated. So I love finding people who want to be stars and want to work and have drive and have imagination and have ambition. Um, and so uh, we, we, we seem to have a nose for that here. 
think oddly, when you pair all those things together, it's a, a fantastic recipe for success. Well, it, it can be. And see, one of the reasons I like New York is you come here because you want to work. And same thing in San Francisco. If you want to go someplace for the lifestyle, then you you know you you, you live in I don't know North Dakota or you know someplace beautiful. But you, when you're in, come to New York, we this is where the game is played. And it's a big game here. Uh, we 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 work with clients in Europe, uh, South America, uh, Asia, San Francisco. It's a, it's a, the game's afoot there as well, and we like working. And we like making the fact. Now, you know, my team has uh, a number of my p- people have families and kids. Um, and so, you know, they balance that workout. But when we're here, we work and, and we want to make a difference. And so I really admire young people who come from wherever they come and they, and they come to New York because it's a different kind of a game here. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, I lived in Minneapolis. I love Minneapolis. I think per square foot, there's more talent in Minneapolis than anywhere else in the country. Um, I think that's true of probably many other places like Austin um, or Portland or Seattle. Those are incredible creative communities. Uh, and I spent a lot of time in them. But New York attracts a certain kind of driven, ambitious, optimistic um, individual. And um, I really um, – and we, see to feed, we seem to feed off that here and uh, out in San Francisco as well. So in a world where the, uh, the workforce is increasingly distributed, do you feel like – you know, 10, 20 years from now, that'll still be true about New York, that if you, if you want to hunt big game, you're, you're still working out of New York. Or do you see even your team, do you see pulling in more distributed players as you guys grow? Oh, you can hunt big game everywhere. I mean, Joe Duffy hunts some of the biggest game in the world. He's in Minneapolis. And certainly the biggest game is played by the, some you know, the people at White and Kennedy. They're in, they're in, you know, um, they're in Portland. So I, I, I don't think it's about, it's about the location. You can create energy anywhere. I think it's about the intersection of really diverse people coming together and bumping up into each other who, who create unexpected patterns. So you get people from India, Brooklyn, Queens, Brazil, Japan, China. It's such an incredible melting pot that the possibility for for other ideas to explode from that sort of exp, um, kind of uh, uh, is expands exponentially because just the variety of people that are here. Um, but I, I don't. I think you can hunt big game from uh, from from Keokuk, Iowa, as well as from New York City. Um, there's something about though being in a studio. We have about 40 people in New York and, and uh, 15, 10, 15 people in San Francisco. But being together and bouncing off ideas in the room with each other, um, the idea that you have a virtual office and people Skype in. I think that's one model. There's certain people can certainly build a career that way, um, but we tend to work better when we're mixing it up in our in our work sessions, um, in our conference rooms, and even in our studio. We like being together, um, and we built a company and we built a space that allows us to do that. What do you feel like is the the catalyst for you know, call it brainstorming or whatever your your term is for it? But when you guys are hammering out an idea, what what do you find that kind of is a good trigger point to set that off? Well, the only people ask for brainstorming sessions are non-creative people consistently. (laughs) You need to have a brainstorming session. No creative person says we need to have a brainstorming session ever. It's uh, ever. They never ask for one. They just want to do their work. What's a catalyst for us is, well, the room that I'm in, I mean, um, it's a room. We've got 2,500 volumes of of, uh, work from architecture to design to painting to art history to philosophy to mythology, to comic books, 
um, to the work on of, of the Eameses, the, the history of advertising, history of posters. Um, Elisitsky, Philippe Stark, Paul Clay, Mark Neeson, um, the work of David Ogilvy. I mean, it's it's a the work of Ken O'Hara. There's a book on Stefan. Um, photography books and her Brits, Alex, you know, um, uh, fairy tales and the Brothers Grimm. I mean, uh, and then all the back wall behind this is uh, books mostly filled with uh, biography and philosophy. Um, we usually start our projects here in this room and we have to find parallels that are not visual, find narrative stories, ideas about the projects that we're looking at that have nothing to do with what it looks like. And we try to we try to find other things: art, architecture, sculpture, um, painting, um, uh, as well as philosophy or mythology, even biography, even fiction, even fairy tales and comic books that are parallels to the issues that we're trying to solve. And that opens up a really interesting area of work because these are books that are not online. Um, we have all the issues of Art Architecture Magazine, which is a, a design magazine that changed American architecture in the nineteen. 40s and 50s. And to go through these images, which young designers are only on Instagram looking at, whether it's the paintings of Vassarelli or, or the work of Paul Clay, those kinds of influences change your perspective. And so we have a giant table that we work and we look at the book, books at, and we usually begin our work with a two-hour creative session in the library, looking at stuff that's non-visual first, and then we look at visual stuff afterwards. I don't know if I've answered you or not, but the library makes it the library is big and makes a huge difference. So I would imagine as you look out there, um, you know, designers and creatives kind of look out and see the world through a different lens. Sometimes that might mean we're blessed or cursed, <laughs> but what do you see trends or things that are happening in the market right now that just absolutely drive you crazy? I think the things that drive me crazy isn't the trends. Trends, trends are fine. Trends mean you're fashionable that you're playing in the moment. Um, as long as you exaggerate them on one side or you make comments on them on the other, it's fine. But just to mimic them, your work will be invisible, as, as will you. The thing that frustrates me the most right now is the confusion of fame with mastery. And it has a lot to do with the power of social media and uh, some very savvy uh, creative people who've leveraged social media um, at a very young age um, to do, I think, some of them are gifted. Some of them, some of them are remarkably gifted. I think Tim Goodman is remarkably good. And then there's some who are not so good, but they become very famous because they've um, they've sort of leveraged uh, the the the, uh, the the dynamics of fame that are involved with social media really well. And so what happens is you get a lot of young people, a lot of young designers, because I've been teaching for 20 years now. A lot of young designers who will who will know the socially famous designers, but won't know who George Nelson is. Or they won't know who Deborah Sussman is, or they won't know who Seymour Quast is, uh, or they won't know who Ivan Shemayev is, um, but they know who so-and-so is. And I think the work is beyond mediocre, but because everyone's talking about it, uh, it it's frustrating. So last uh, earlier this year, I did two films, one on Seymour Quast and one on Deborah Sussman, because I was in a group of students who, had, who knew who a very famous and celebrated designer was, uh, but did not know who Deborah Sussman was, nor Seymour Quast. And these are guys who in their junior year of design school, and I almost, you could have knocked me over with a feather. And so I did two films, one on Deborah Sussman, who designed the 1984 Olympics and worked, was the first graphic designer hired by Charles and Ray Eames. And then I did a project um, 
And then I did a film on Seymour Cost, who's one of the founders of the Pushpin Studios with Milton Glaser, and has had a remarkable illustration career. And in his 80s, 70s, late 70s, I think, doing some of the best work of his life. Um, they both won uh, the Hall of Fame award from the Art Directors Club. Um, so since I've been the vice president of the Art Directors Club, I did two films. Um, uh, I, I did a film on both of them. And I gave it to the young people on my team, sorry, on, on my students. I said, these are two really seminal designers that you should know about. Um, and hopefully they'll it'll crack open their curiosity and they'll seek to learn more. But I think that's what's shocking to me is that every profession, every creative profession, dance, architecture, music, film, they really understand the past. And they look at the, their heroes and they really understand them and they understand the histories that they're working on. You can't become a great filmmaker unless you understand um, Eisenstein, unless you understand Hitchcock, unless you understand Kubrick. That's just necessary. You study how they create form. And the level of ignorance around the history of design in American design students to me is staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And they know who the, the, the hotshot is who's got a, you know, has 200,000 followers on Instagram, but that they don't know who Bill Golden is as the first designer at CBS is mind-boggling to me. Um, but my experience has been the ones who want to know that stuff are the best. And that helps me separate the wheat from the chaff. The ones who are fascinated by design history are the ones who are good. Well, along those lines, where can we track down those films that you made? Uh, go on the Art Directors Club, uh, uh, adcglobal.com. Uh, one's on Seymour Quast and one is on uh, Deborah Sesson. And they're, they're, short, they're more like tone poems. Uh, we, we did them here internally. Oh, we scored some good music for them. We edited them. I'd, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, it gets, go on this Art Directors Club uh, site. Uh, yeah, I'll absolutely check those out. So outside of tracking down the amazing designers who sort of paved the way for the rest of us, um, what is your favorite or best piece of advice for young designers or young creatives who are wanting to make a, a career of this? Two things. Uh, work your ass off. If you think you can have a career by going home at five o'clock, good. You won't have one. What will happen is you'll go home at five o'clock, um, and uh, you'll you'll. Uh, I don't know of any well-known designer who succeeded who left work at five o'clock. I mean, that sounds horrible because you should have a work-life balance. Um, we're, we are we try to be a no weekend company here, so we work intensely during the week, but it's work, um, and you have to you you do that in your twenties, and you your brain is a sponge basically from like when you're a child until you're in your mid thirties and no one tells you this, but your, your obligation is to fill as much experience, insight, imagination, reading, work in your brain between the time you're born. And I think about 35. So you can have that as fuel to drive the rest of your career. Um, and that's hard work and it's taking and raising your hand and saying, yes, never saying no, saying yes. If, Banish the word no from your vocabulary and say yes, if. Yes, I can do that if I get the time. Yes, I can do that if I have the money. Yes, I can do that if I can take the next three weekends out. Yes, I can. <laughs> Always yes, if. Say yes to everything if. Is it good? Can I get, get, you know, can I get credit for it? Can I do this with it? Always say yes, if. So hard work and saying yes. And then the next thing is take nothing personally. Nothing. Nothing. Your boss doesn't like what you did? Fine. Do another thing. Yeah, um, someone gets angry with you. Fine, like don't say anything and and just show up to the following day as if it doesn't it didn't matter. Now, if someone's abusive, like you know, get away from them. 
um, in any capacity. But don't take, those are the two things I would say. Work hard, say yes to everything, because um, you never know what's going to happen. And don't take anything personal, and take nothing personally. Brian, fantastic pieces of advice. Um, I appreciate you taking the time. Is that helpful? Oh my goodness, yes. Do you, do you agree? I would absolutely agree. I mean, I was I was definitely that that person early in my career where I was the last one to leave and the first one to get there, or maybe not always the first one to get there, but definitely the last one to leave often. And it was, you know, not always just catching up on work that I had to do, but making up things so I could learn a technology or a technique or to emulate something. And I, I love that advice. Well, here's, here's what I know is that if you're a designer and you're a young designer, you're trying to figure it out and you have great, you get taste. Young designers tend to listen to these pro, pro, these uh, sort of podcasts more than anybody else. And there's a lot of designers who are working right now. They're probably, you know, they're at their desk late or they're trying to get to their office in the morning or their studio or they're working alone. They're students, you know, they're working hard. Um, and I know this. I know this to be a fact. There are designers who are gifted, just incredibly gifted. Um, and one of those designers, just out of the gate, they run. Chip Kidd was like that. Oh, my God. You know, just boom. Uh, Matt Luckhurst, who works with me, Matt was like that, out of the gate, you know, running 100 miles an hour. Those those, those guys are rare. Um, uh, Deborah Sussman, out of the gate. You know, her work uh, uh, was called uh, the, the industrial design of the decade. She wasn't even in her 30s by that, that point. So boom. Most of us are not like that. I certainly wasn't. But what I do know is there are a lot of designers who want to work really hard and they're not quite sure of their talent and they're not quite sure if, if, if they've got what it takes. But here's what I know. Give me a B plus or B student with A level ambition and over time they will become an A player. I've seen it again and again and again and again. There's a really celebrated designer in San Francisco, two of them, who worked on my team. I won't say who they are. Their early portfolios were not great. Um, and they are accomplished. There's one in New York City right now who's become very famous. She was a student of mine. I gave her a job because she was ambitious. And God, she worked so hard. And she was so curious. And she was so smart. But man, it, you do not want to see her first year portfolio. It was mediocre isn't the word. But man, she was ambitious. And she she wanted it so bad. And there's enough hope. And she had incredible taste. I said, just put your head down. And you're going to have to work harder than anybody else. Man, she's at the top of the game now. And so are these other two. Um, one of them has become quite wealthy. Um, because he started a company and he made an investment with a friend of his in a food product and boom, it exploded. Um, and he's, he's, he's a gifted, gifted designer, but earlier on his portfolio was just not good. He went to like a, went to a state school in, in the Midwest, but uh, with the right direction and the right mentorship, um, and the right ambition and the right faith that somebody has in you, that you can, can be extraordinary, that you can be amazing. You can, that's why the boss you choose is really important. You can do anything. I've seen it again and again. I've seen C plus players with dedication and hard work um, turn around to become chief creative officer of a design firm or a creative agency because they wanted it. And and that's that's the difference between people who have extraordinary careers and extraordinary work lives and people who don't. They want it. They really, really want it. If you don't want it, don't play the game. Love it. Fantastic advice and uh, and insight. Brian, before we let you go here, I'm curious. Um, so of course we told everybody on the last episode, they can go to, 
uh, wearecollins.com to check out more about what you guys are about. Do you have any requests or um, any challenges for our audience? So that's an interesting question. Um, yeah. Prove that New York City and San Francisco um, and the cities, you know, there are designers now who are probably, you know, not in Chicago and not in San Francisco and not in New York or, you know, and show me that I'm wrong. Hmm. Show me that those can be as vibrant as crucial centers of design, not just individual practitioners, but that you could create um, something extraordinary. I think if you take a look at what happened at, uh, was it Savannah College of Art and Design? I think it was started like 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. That changed the city. You know, and who knew that one of the best art schools in, in the country would, would be in Savannah. Um, so that's what I like. Wherever you are, if you don't want to join us in New York or in San Francisco or soon in Amsterdam, then make shit happen wherever you are and make it. And you can. Um, and that's what that would be my challenge to to them is it, it doesn't matter where you are. It really doesn't. If you, you have the right kind of enthusiasm, the right kind of passion, you can make noise make a difference anywhere. Awesome. Well, Brian, I so appreciate that you've made time for a part two here and, uh, thanks again for, for joining us and thank you for being obsessed with design. All right, kids, that's episode number 42 in the books. Hey, today I want you to tweet at obsessed show and let me know who else you'd like to hear me interview on the podcast. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. Hit us up this week online at milesherndon.com. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by the talented Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Check out brassybroad.com for more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.